Father, we come and we want to thank you again for your word. And Lord, we want to thank you that you work in the lives of your people in great power. And that you want to use us as your people to bring just your light into the darkness of our world. And we see such a great need for that at this time. Lord, we think of the terrible things that happened in London during the week. We think of people there and just a sense of insecurity that many must be feeling. We think of the families who lost people who they loved and are mourning their loss. And Lord, we pray that in these times that more and more individuals and as a nation, people will reach out to you because you are the only true security that we have. And it's only by your grace and by your power that we can finally defeat those great powers of darkness. Lord, their power is great, but their power is nothing as your power, because you are a God who is all-powerful, a God who is all-loving, a God who is gracious and merciful. Lord, be with us in our nation now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I remember a, a fair number of years ago now, standing at an airport and listening in while two well-known Baptist pastors debated the, the relative merits of the education system in the UK and in, in North America. One who'd just moved to, to North America was convinced that the schools that his children were attending just weren't as good as the ones that they'd been in in the United Kingdom. And the reply from the other pastor was, don't worry, the cream will always rise to the top. Now, I don't know if that statement was of any comfort to the worried pastor. I suppose that would depend on whether or not he thought his children were of the cream. But it's funny, isn't it, the things that sometimes stick in your mind, probably because of who said it, where it was said. But, you know, over the years, this statement is something that I've thought about quite a bit off and on. And if it means that it doesn't matter what education system we've got, then that's something I certainly don't agree with. Because for the vast majority of people, this does matter. It matters an awful lot. It can make an enormous difference to the level of achievement. But what's actually said in that statement about the cream rising to the top, I do agree with. For I do believe that there are a small percentage of people who will flourish because of the, the ability they have, no matter what the system. And Daniel here, in admittedly a significantly different context, the political rather than the educational, he is as good an illustration of this principle that the cream rises as we could possibly hope to find. For here we find that yet again, Daniel has risen to be the most influential man in the kingdom. Previously, he'd been chief advisor of Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest ever king of Babylon. And even Nebuchadnezzar's godless, immoral successor, Belshazzar, he, even he had turned to Daniel in his moment of crisis and need. And now we find him here, in Daniel chapter 6, 60 years later now, over 80 years of age, 
have been risen again to be the chief advisor, this time of a king Darius of an entirely different empire, the Medes and the Persians, who had now conquered Babylon. What a record, though, of consistency. And what an example of adaptability that a man of 80 can make the necessary adjustments that are required to fit into a completely new system of government. In fact, not just to fit in. Now, for here, Daniel, sorry, Darius is about to promote Daniel to be his official number two, verse three. Now, Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So it's true. The cream does indeed rise to the top. However, I'm sure by now that you're aware of that we've discovered the motivation. That motivation that lay at the heart of Daniel's life that then caused him to harness and to use to the very best whatever abilities and gifts he'd been given. And that is quite simply that God came first for Daniel. That was his secret. He knew, you see, that his God, the living God, was Lord. And he loved his Lord and he devoted his life to serving him. And so, you see, as part of his service to God, Daniel then fulfilled whatever tasks were set before him to the very best of his ability and with absolute integrity. Because, you see, he knew that in doing this, he was then being true to the character of his good and his holy God. Now, this was the secret of his advancement. This is what enabled him to rise to the top. But you see, that that same advancement hit at the sinful pride and so provoked jealousy among those that he was being provoked above those satraps and those other administrators. But you can imagine it, can't you? Here was a foreigner being put in charge of them. Hey, they won't go to stand for this. Now they were determined to discredit Daniel, to destroy Daniel in whatever way they could, but they look and, and they've got no grounds. The very qualities that had led to Daniel's promotion, his hard work, his honesty and integrity, left him, left him with no scope for an attack on him. So they decide they'll have to resort to trickery. They'll have to deceive the king if they are to destroy Daniel. Now there are a number of things that that we can learn from this chapter, I think, about the character of this king, Darius. Of whom, incidentally, by the way, there is virtually no information about outside the pages of the Bible. At least none so far that has been discovered. The best bets to date are that this was an enthronement name, a special name that was taken on by Cyrus, king of Persia, to mark the first year of his reign. Or alternatively, and I don't think this is such a good idea, but anyway, that this was a name that was taken by one of Cyrus's generals when he was appointed to rule for a short period in Babylon while Cyrus was absent. We can't be sure. But what we can be sure of regarding Darius from this passage here 
is that he valued Daniel. He trusted Daniel. He cared for Daniel deeply. And yet, that he was also self-centered and egotistical. That, I think, at least is hinted at by what it says in verse 2 about the reason why he wanted to ensure that his kingdom was efficiently administrated. Read it. That the king might suffer no loss. You see, forget about the welfare of the people. Forget about the advancement of the nation. Darius' first concern was himself. And this was his Achilles heel that left him open to flattery and the heel was fully exploited by Daniel's enemies. And in a way, I think, you know, that, that what happens here would perhaps suggest that, that Darius actually wasn't the brightest of sparks either. Because what they basically suggest is, hey, Darius, that, that you're such a great king that you should declare yourself God for 30 days. Just to show how great you are. No one else is to be allowed to pray to anyone or anything else for 30 days. I mean, think of it. Can you really imagine anything more ridiculous? Declaring yourself God for 30 days. Once these men, though, get Darius to make this law, they do, at that point, have him trapped. Because as verse 12 makes clear, for the Medes and the Persians, it was an absolute, no give, no take, that once their king made a law, that law could not be changed. Interestingly, though, I think it, it seems to me that here the farcical nature of so many man-made laws is, is underlined here by the fact that at the end of this chapter, from verse 25 on, presumably after the 30 days is over, Darius issues a new decree here that is in total opposition to this initial decree. I think if Darius was alive today, he'd probably get a job somewhere, I'm sure, in government, probably legislating on the famous bend of cucumbers or, or bananas or something like that. But anyway, that was Darius. So Darius was trapped. Why, though, did Daniel allow himself to be trapped? Why did he allow these men to trap him? I mean, he was an incredibly wise and perceptive man. He knew, I'm sure, what was going on here. He knew the kind of corner that these men were trying to manoeuvre him into. So why then did he continue to pray as he always had? Couldn't he just have made a a few adjustments? You know, maybe prayed in a a secret corner, maybe prayed at, at different times, hidden the fact in some way that he was praying to his God? No, he couldn't. He couldn't. No, because Daniel knew that by doing this, that he would then be joining in the idolatry of the society around him. And he knew that if he did this, that he would destroy a lifetime of witness to his faith in his God. And of course, Daniel's behavior here is is totally consistent with the way that he's actually lived throughout his life. Because as we know, those who have looked through Daniel together with me, Right from the days of his youth, those days recorded in Daniel chapter 1, when he refused to eat the food of the king. Remember? Because eating the food of the king meant giving your first loyalty, giving your first allegiance to the king. 
And this was something that Daniel would never give to anyone other than the Lord. So again, you see, what we see here is we see the balance that's found repeatedly in Daniel's life demonstrated once more. That he's willing to cooperate with the society around him. Yes, he is. He's willing to learn about it so that he can most effectively interact with that society. He is. He's ready to involve himself positively where he can in order to serve his society. But where Daniel consistently draws the line is in that he will not do anything. He will not allow himself to be seduced or coerced into doing anything that will involve compromising the heart of his faith. That will involve compromise in terms of God's first place in his life. Daniel's continuing commitment to pray to his God, though, means that his enemy's trap is sprung. And from then on, for a a fair piece of the way, things seem to go the way that these enemies had anticipated. For they go to the king. Too late, Darius realizes what's happened. He realizes that he's been tricked. But he can do nothing about it. He's locked in to his decision because, as it says, the laws of the Medes and Persians cannot be repealed. And so Daniel is thrown into the lion's den. Well, poor Darius, we're told, spends the night unable to eat, unable to sleep. Poor wee soul. Now, no doubt, he's in part worried here because he cared about Daniel. But, you know, could it also be that this self-centered, egotistical man, that he's also worried about what Daniel's God might do to him? Should any harm come to Daniel? Certainly, it would seem from what he says, when he has Daniel thrown into the lion's den, it would seem that he certainly heard something about the power of Daniel's God and of what that God has done in the past. Verse 16, the king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. Anyway, at first light, he's up. He rushes to the lion's den and he cries out, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Now, I love here the comments of Gilbert Belazikian, who's got some fantastic, serious insights on this chapter, but who says here that, that Daniel proves himself to be a righteous man by his reply to Darius, for he says that his reply would have been, drop dead, you jerk. Daniel's, though, is rather more gracious. O king, verse 21, live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouth of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I done any wrong before you, O king. The results of God's deliverance of Daniel, though, are here fairly clear-cut. Daniel prospers. Verse 28. But above all, God is honored by his witness. For the king knows that all this has happened. Verse 23. Because Daniel has trusted 
in his God. And so because of this, he now issues a new decree. Verse 26, I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. Daniel's enemies, though, are put to death with all their families, which, by the way, I don't believe we should see as Darius fulfilling God's will. I don't think we should because God's word makes it clear, Jeremiah 31, 30, that men should be punished for their own sin. Rather, what Darius does here, we know from history, is just accepted Persian practice. This is what they did to their enemies. That's the basic story, though, of this chapter. From this, though, let me just very briefly draw out two truths that I think it's, it's vital that we get a hold of. Two truths. First, conflict is inevitable for the believer in this world. Conflict is inevitable. You can be as quiet and you can be as unassuming as you like, as inoffensive as you like. But if you are a Christian who is truly living the Christian life as you should, then it is inevitable that you will experience some degree of conflict living in this world. It's inevitable. Why? Well, reduced to its most basic. Because in this world, life is lived with man at the centre. You see, in this world, man is number one. Man is given first priority. We are seen as most important. But for the true believer, though, the believer following in the footsteps of Daniel. It's God who's at the center of life. It's God who's number one. It's God who's first. It's he who is in charge because he is Lord. And you see, this literally makes a world of difference. A world of difference to the way we live our lives. To the value we place on things. To the way that we view the world. And to the decisions that we make. And this will inevitably bring us into direct conflict with the world around us. And even when it doesn't bring us into direct conflict. The fact that we live differently. That we make those different choices and decisions. This in itself will make some people uneasy will rub them up the wrong way. But there are, though, some very important practical issues, I believe, that emerge from this that I think it's very important that we get a hold of. Like, like this. Don't, in response to this, feel that you've got to reject totally the world in the sense of the culture that we're living in. Don't think that. Now, Christians have at times in the past done this. They've separated themselves as much as they can, as far as they can, totally from the world. But you see, this kind of idea of total, absolute separation from the world, the world, by the way, that's supposed to be our mission field, well, it makes mission and evangelism kind of difficult, doesn't it? Rather, I believe the, the kind of balance that the Bible teaches and that God wants to see in our lives, in the lives of his people, is where we are involved in the world, but not absorbed into the world. 
where we get alongside people, enjoy the good God-given things of this world with people. But we're in this, in the midst of this, we stand up for God and we stand apart from the sin that offends God. You see, it's about spiritual separation, not physical separation. Now in this, I believe we are following Daniel. Daniel, who was fully involved in the Babylonian, later Persian culture he was placed in. Fully a part of that, but who would not do anything that would compromise his faith, compromise his walk with the Lord. You see, he was involved in the world, but not absorbed into the world. And this does tie in with Jesus' teaching. For example, John 17, 15, where Jesus says, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Protect them in the world, that is, from the evil one. The other important practical point I want to make here is, but you know, do in this, make sure that your life is distinctive, that your life is different. Make sure that your life does speak of different values, does speak of a different God-centered worldview. Seek to ensure that the Lord through you introduces his love, his compassion, his holiness through you into whatever context, wherever you find yourself. Just make sure that your life does point to a divine alternative. To this man-centered world. This system that surrounds us. So have you got it? Don't be absorbed by this world. But do get involved in this world. Just get involved to show, to offer a godly alternative to a desperately needy world. Now the other truth that I want to draw out from this story is that while conflict is inevitable, yet when conflict comes, God can deliver. When conflict comes, when lions attack, God can deliver. And not just from literal, physical lions. No, God can deliver us from those lions that attack within. From things like guilt, depression, doubt, from habitual sins, that hold us and can seem to exercise a tyranny over us, God can deliver us. And God can deliver us from the lions that attack the body. He can deliver us from disease. He can deliver us from those lions that sometimes seem to surround us in our society, from those who would mock us and oppose us and persecute us. God can deliver us. But, but, As many of us here know, God doesn't always deliver us. us, Deliverance is not automatic, and certainly deliverance is not God's obligation. In fact, more often, God works in us in a different way when the lions attack. He does, and just to demonstrate, to illustrate What I want to say to you here, just to try and draw out from the Bible for you, I would just like to just briefly contrast Daniel's experience here with that of Stephen 
the first Christian martyr in the book of Acts. Now let's just try and get it in context. In Acts 1.8, there Jesus shared with the disciples his vision for the future mission of the church. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see, that the idea was that the church should reach out in ever-increasing circles. First in their own locality, Jerusalem. Then out to the regions around Judea and Samaria. And then finally on, out to the wider world, to the ends of the earth. And when the Holy Spirit came at at Pentecost, the church then did know considerable growth. They knew dramatic growth in Jerusalem. You know, when the the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people were saved on that day, that day. And it didn't stop there. For Acts 2.47, it tells us that daily the Lord added to those who were being saved. The trouble was that the church was growing cosy, fat, and comfortable in Jerusalem. Acts 5.42 says, day after day in the temple court. See that? They were getting cosy in the familiar native Jewish context. And then from house to house there in Jerusalem, they never stopped proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. But you see, they had forgotten The command of Jesus. They'd forgotten the vision of Jesus. Their success in Jerusalem had trapped them there in Jerusalem. But so they were in danger because of this, of being sucked into Judaism, assimilated into Judaism, just becoming another one of its sects, another one of its fringe groups like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But then you see, God raises up Stephen. Stephen, a man who preaches Christ so forthrightly, so courageously that the leaders of the synagogue just cannot accommodate what Stephen is preaching. And so he then finds himself on trial before the Sanhedrin, that great ruling council of Judaism, on trial then before the same lions who had condemned Jesus to death. And as Jesus, sorry, as Stephen again preaches Jesus' salvation through Jesus Christ to them, well, these lions then attack. Acts 7.54 tells us that when they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. And Stephen is killed. The lions kill him. So where then is God in this? God delivers Daniel from the lions. Stephen is killed by the lions. Does that then mean that God is absent from Stephen's experience? Well, I just want to draw three lessons out of that experience. Three things we can expect to experience of God as we are open to God when the lions But just let me make it clear, though, before I do this, that what I'm going to say here will only really make sense for you if you truly value the things of the Spirit 
in your life. You see, in the Bible, there is a development. There's a moving on between the, the Old Testament times of Daniel and the New Testament times of Stephen. But as you see, in the, in, the New, in the Old Testament, sorry, God's blessing there is primarily about physical safety and material prosperity. In the New Testament, though, this moves on, this develops, this matures. Now, in the New Testament, God's primary blessing is about spiritual safety. It's about spiritual resources, spiritual blessings. So you see, if you don't count the things of the Spirit, if you don't count the things of heaven, the things of eternity, as more precious than the things of this world, of this time, then what I'm going to go on to say to you now just won't connect. It won't make sense. Not until you learn to truly treasure the things that really matter. But the first thing that we can expect to experience as we are open to God when the lions attack, the first thing is Christ's presence. For you see, when Daniel was in the lion's den, the angels muzzled the lions. Wonderful. But Stephen... When he was surrounded by the lions who were to kill him, I tell you, I believe he knew something better by far. He knew that he was not alone. He knew that Jesus was with him and was glorified through him. Acts 7.55, as his enemies, the lions, are there all around him. Look, he said, I see heaven open." And the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Friends, I want to tell you, this is the greatest thing of all. When we're surrounded, when we're under pressure, when we're at the end of ourselves, when we're under attack, this is the greatest thing of all. Knowing that the Jesus who has been through it, The Jesus who knows us, who understands us, who knows what we're going through, who loves us with an incredible love, that he is able to come to us and empower us. Knowing that he is always with us. There is nothing better than that. The second thing we can expect to experience as we are open to God, I believe, is Christ's likeness. For listen from Acts to what Stephen went through and and how he was able to respond to it. And tell me who it reminds you of. For Stephen's enemies dragged him out of the city, abused him and then executed him. Does that sound familiar? As they were stoning him, in the act of stoning him, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Do you remember words similar to these? And then, with his last dying breath, he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Listen. The parallels here with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ are inescapable. You see, here we are told that in the midst of the lions... Stephen is becoming Christ-like. 
And here again, Gilbert Belizekian says, he says that one of the most profound truths of the New Testament is that the suffering of believers is never wasted. It never is. If we turn to God in it. It never is. Because you see, there is nothing like suffering to refine our spiritual life. Nothing like suffering to separate the dross from the gold and then to burn that dross away. There is nothing like suffering to develop and improve our spiritual character when our suffering is committed to God. Peter's words in 1 Peter 1 verse 6, I believe, are so true. You may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. The third thing I believe that we can expect to experience as we're open to God when the lions of life attack is kingdom advance. For you see, it is God's way that the greatest kingdom advances, the greater advances in his rule, in his glory, in his influence, they come in this world through suffering. That was true when Jesus died. It's been true throughout the history of the church, the famous saying that the blood of the martyrs has led to the growth of the church. And you know what? It was true to in Acts. For in Acts 8 verse 1, on the day that Stephen died, on that day, persecution broke out against the church. And the church scattered. And the church then took the gospel with them on that day from Jerusalem to Judea and to the very ends of the earth. You see, What the commands of Christ couldn't get them to do. Suffering and persecution got them to do. I'm bringing this down today right down to the individual level. I'm sure that there are many people here today in this place who could share with us of experiences that you've been through in life. Tough times in life that you would rather not have gone through. Times in life when you were in the midst of them and you didn't know if you were going to make it through. You were at the end of yourself. But now though, as you look back, you can see that God achieved things through what you were going through. And that God achieved things in you through what you went through there that would never have happened if that trial hadn't have happened. So let's then be clear about it. Lions will attack us in life. We will suffer in this life. Be sure of that. And God can deliver us. He can take us right out of it. But more often, God wants to work in us and through us in the midst of it. And God can do that. He is able. He can. 
as we are open to him. As our hearts and our lives are turned to him. And that's the key. That's where we need to be at in life. That's the key. If we're to know the blessing of God as Daniel did. Let's just come and pray together. Father, you know the the situations of each person here. You know the challenges that we're facing in different ways. And we know our God, that you are with us. We know that you have the power to glorify yourself in us. But what you're calling us to right now is to trust you, to hold on to you, to live for your glory, to put you first. Lord, be with your people here. Comfort us, but above all, strengthen us to live for you. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.